So um, I've got a lot of pet peeves. I'm sure you do too. I think we all have a collective pet peeve after the last four weeks, which is 90 plus inches of snow. It's been rough. I want to tell you about one of my pet peeves. It's sitting in the middle seats on a plane flight. I do not like sitting in the middle seat of a plane flight. Especially if you don't know the people who you're sitting next to. It can be terribly awkward. It has potential for disaster, right? Where am I going to put my elbows? What if I fall, what if I fall asleep and my head nicely rests on some stranger's shoulder? There's a lot of potential awkwardness for the middle seat. And I remember our trip to Dubai last May. This is a 12-hour flight. Jeremy and myself and Blaine, one of our pastoral assistants, we were on this flight 12 hours direct from Boston to Dubai, and I was in the middle seat. Jeremy was on one side, so that kind of mitigates things a little bit, but on the other side was this strange man. He wasn't strange. He was just a man that I didn't know. And so in the middle of this flight, I fall asleep, and I wake up, and I quickly recognize that something foreign is touching my knee. And so I look over, and, and of course, the strange man has fallen asleep. And, uh, you know, and so you know what happens. So there it is, my knee, his knee, met in the middle. So I did what all of us would do, which is the, the middle seat stretch. So you stretch out a little bit, make some space for yourself. And it worked out for me, right? So there's a technique. I give it to you. Do the middle seat stretch if you ever feel awkward. It's a little selfish, but go for it. Not all of my middle seat experiences have been bad. In fact, uh, many of them had been really good because God, by his grace, has given me the opportunity to share the gospel with people in the middle seat or from the middle seat. And uh, let me just tell you right off the bat, I am an average evangelist, probably like many of you. I'm not, you know, some of you are great evangelists. You have stories every week. That's not me. But in the middle seat, God has given me some fun experiences. I remember one flight to Denver, I was visiting some friends, and I was sitting between two women. I remember as I sat down, I was looking at one woman. She was the window seat woman. She, turns out she's from Morocco, and she looked really sad, and her face was distraught. I didn't know what was going on. The other woman, she was uh, an American woman. She was really friendly and chipper and excited to be there, so we immediately struck up a conversation, made some small talk. And uh, so, you know, halfway through the flight, I was a seminary student at that point, and so I had my Bible open, I was working on some assignment, and the Moroccan woman immediately saw what I was doing, and she, she started a conversation with me. And at one point, she asked me, she found out I was training to be a pastor, she asked me, she, she says to me, I grew up in a Muslim context. My parents are devout Muslims. And I'm exploring the Christian faith. Can you help me to articulate the Christian faith to my Muslim parents? Because they've told me if I continue on this path, they will totally disown me. Whoa, here it is. Tell me about Jesus. And right away, the the other woman says, you know what? I would love to hear your answer to that question too. (laughs) So I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm like, Okay, this doesn't happen to me, you know? And pinch me. Somebody pinch me. And then God gave me words. He gave me words. 
Have you ever had the experience where someone asks you to tell them about Jesus? What have you said? What have you said in those moments? Have you ever had the experience when someone puts a platform in front of you and says, okay, tell me about Christ. Tell me about this grace that is so intriguing in your life. What have you said in those moments? Maybe you're talking with a neighbor. Maybe you're at a play date with some good friends. Maybe it's the holiday time and, you know, it's Thanksgiving and your crazy uncle who loves to debate things turns to you and starts to ask you questions. The conversation shifts to the church or shifts to Christ in some way. And, you know, people are looking around. They look at you because they know you might be the only Christian in the room. So they're looking to you for an answer. What what have you said in those moments? What have I said in those moments? Well, some of us get tongue-tied, right? We don't know what to say. We stumble over our words. We blurt out some things, and we hope that God will use those words. Sometimes he does. It's beautiful. Some of us maybe say too much. We're not listening. We need to listen more. We need to ask questions. We need to draw the person out to understand where is this person coming from. So what do you say in those kinds of situations? This is the situation that the Apostle Paul found himself in when he visited the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. So turn to Acts chapter 13. It's page 1092 in your pew Bible. Acts chapter 13, 1092. What's Paul going to say to these Jews? Well, he says a lot of things. It's a long passage, so bear with me as I read it. Acts 13, starting in verse... 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. And so, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took place about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants... God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me, 
whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son. Today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said to you does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you for um, understanding of this passage. Lord, we admit to you that Without your spirits, we would not be able to understand this and apply it to our lives. So fill us with your spirit now. Father, we confess to you that we are distracted, many of us, by the cares of this world. Even as we come into this place, we bring burdens and worries. Some of us, Lord, uh, carry guilt over our sins and failures from this past week. Our spiritual nerve endings are dull. And so we ask, Father, that you would shepherd us this morning. We need your tender touch. We need your guidance. Lead us to still waters and green pastures. Guide us through the valley of the shadow of death. Give us great confidence that you are with us now. So speak to us now, Lord. Give us eyes to see. Give us soft hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so looking at the first few verses here, verses 13 through 15, you'll notice it's a bit of a travel log. Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. So if you want to open up your bulletin, you'll see on the inside cover on the bottom, you'll see a map. And this map documents Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. You'll notice that it started in Antioch, and they traveled by boat to Cyprus, which is an island. It was actually Barnabas' kind of home island. And now they are in modern-day Turkey. Okay, so they're traveling through some towns in modern-day Turkey, and they land in Pisidian Antioch, 
not to be confused with the Antioch which they started from. And this city, Pisidian Antioch, is a Roman colony. It's a leading city in the region of Galatia. And it had a large population of Jews. Okay, so here they are. They attend the synagogue services. Now, Paul's pattern, we're going to see this all the way through the rest of the book of Acts, Paul's pattern and his priority was first to speak the gospel to Jewish people in the synagogues, and then we'll see him move from there, proclaim Christ to uh, Gentile people. And we see him doing that in our section here as well. Now, at these synagogue services, much like our own uh, worship services, you know, there's a particular order. There's a particular liturgy. So what did their liturgy look like? Well, it started with an opening prayer. And then there were some readings from Scripture, one from the Torah, the law, which is the first five books of the Bible, and then one from the prophets, which is another section in the Old Testament. Then there would be some more prayers, and if someone was able, they would stand up and they would preach a sermon based usually on the passages that were read. And so here they are, and some of the rulers, they, they asked the brothers, you know, Paul and Barnabas, come and give us the sermon. Now, they likely didn't know who Barnabas was, but they probably knew who Paul was. Because you've got to remember, Paul was the great Pharisee, right? Before he became a Christian, Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was so zealous for the Jewish faith that he persecuted Christians. And he was trained under the great Gamaliel, the, the great Jewish educator and uh, leader. So here's Paul. And they, they recognize him, and they're thinking, wow, we want to get this guy to come up and preach. But little did they know that this same Paul encountered the living Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, right? And in that encounter, his life would be totally turned around. And within weeks, he would not only become a Christian, but he would start on that track that would lead him to become one of the greatest or perhaps the greatest missionary in the history of the church. So it's that Paul that's now about to get in front of them. They didn't know that. So here we are. So what is Paul going to say, right? Now, when I'm given this platform, when people ask me about Christ, I'm really, really tempted to say what people want me to say. Excuse me, what people want to hear and not what people need to hear. That's what I'm tempted to say. And Paul could have easily done this as well, right? In this moment as he's getting up, you know, let's say Psalm 23 was the reading for the day, and so he gets up and he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let's talk about that. And he says, uh, you know, um, God shepherds his people, he cares for his people in the good times, he, he cares for people in the bad times, and so trust him. You can trust him. That's a pretty good sermon, right? That's an encouraging sermon for us. We need to hear those words. But there's zero Jesus in that sermon, right? There's zero gospel in that sermon. In other words, it's a very good Jewish sermon and a terrible Christian one. A terrible Christian sermon. And I think we can do this too sometimes. We tell people what we think they want to hear and not what they need to hear when we've been given this platform for Christ. So you're talking to someone who's maybe agnostic or an atheist, and you're so concerned that, that you need to build some bridges that you talk about, okay, the church is full of good moral people, nice people in the church, and the Ten Commandments 
you know, if everybody obeyed the Ten Commandments as a society, it would be beneficial for everyone. You're trying to find common ground and you forget to tell people about Christ. Or you're talking to someone who's spiritual but not religious, and it's so easy to use vague language about a higher power. Or uh, you can talk about the benefits of positive thinking without ever declaring who Christ is, right? Maybe you're talking to someone who is religious, who, who grew up in the church, who believes in a God. And so you talk about being a person of faith, about having faith, about trusting God. But you kind of forget to mention the object of that faith, Jesus. It's easy for all of us to do this. Well, what did Paul say? What did he do? He said what the Jewish folks needed to hear. He didn't pull any punches when it came to Christ. He had three points. Know your history, know Jesus, and know your need. Know your history, know Jesus, know your need. Those are the three points of this sermon as well. So let's start with know your history. Starting in verse 16, Paul stands up, he motions his hands, men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Here it is. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. And then he goes on and what he does is he narrates kind of history of the Israelite people. He narrates a history of the Israelite people. There's a lot, to, a lot of things to point out in this first part of the sermon. Let me just point out a couple things here. First of all, you'll notice when we, when we read through this passage that God is the center of the story, right? The center of this historical narrative about Israel. Look at verse 17 again. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. Verse 18, he, God, endured their conduct for about 40 years. Verse 19, God overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people. Uh, next verse, after this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel. Uh, verse 21, then the people asked for a king and God gave them Saul. Verse 22, after taking away Saul, God made David their king. God is the center of the Jewish the ancient Jewish story. And Paul is reminding his listeners of that idea, of that truth. God is writing your story, ancient Israel. He is the chief protagonist. He is the main actor in your play. Not you, God is. His listeners needed to be reminded of this. And so do we this morning. We so often make ourselves the center of our story, don't we? It's really natural, natural for us to do that. Everything is oriented around ourselves. And so a friend is talking to you about purchasing a house. And all you can think about is how dingy your house is and how you wish you could build a bigger house or, a, or buy a new house. Or A coworker shares about a new promotion and, and you're thinking, man, I could totally use the extra money. Is my boss not like me? What's going on? A friend talks about going on a date, and you're thinking, man, I haven't been on a date in a long time. Or you're married, and you're thinking, I don't need to go on dates. I'm married. And we create this massive interlocking web of relationships and situations and experiences and people, and they all orbit around me. And then we begin to give proportional weight to those things and those people and those situations that benefit me 
We pull them in closer to the, the center of our solar systems, and we push all of the other things out to the edge. This is our tendency. Listen, we don't need to connect every conversation and every experience and every situation and every person to ourselves. You know, one of the tragic trends, I think, in 21st century American culture is our subtle narcissism. Let me give you an example. Have you ever heard this question before? Where were you when 9-11 happened? Where were you when... Let me, let me answer that question for you. I was on the third floor in Bursley Dormitory on North Campus in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was a second-year engineering student. I walked down the hallway, and I heard some, uh, you know, my floor mates, they were watching the news, and it was all the same thing, so, of course, I'm interested. I pop into one of the rooms, and there I saw it. Does that, does that really matter where I was? Does that matter at all? doesn't matter. There's maybe three locations that matter on 9-11. New York City, the Pentagon, the throne room of God. Any other places matter? There's a subtle narcissism that I think we're all kind of a part of. And Paul is saying to the Jewish people here, and I think God's telling us this morning, God is the main actor in human history. God is the main actor in church history. He's the center of this story. It's all about him, his glory, his fame. You know, I think we can think of this in another way, too. Not only has God written the history of humanity or the history of church, he's also writing our personal history, too, right? He also governs our personal history, too. The good, the bad, the ugly, the painful, he is over it all. This is a hard pill, I think, for us to swallow sometimes, right? Especially if we do have pain and difficulty in our lives. That God is over it. He governs it. But if we think about this rightly, this truth should bring us tremendous comfort and hope. Because he not only governs the pain and the difficulty and the discouragement, he's good. He's good. And sometimes we don't know how to make it all work out in our minds, but we can trust that he is good and he governs my story. And man, do we need that firm ground when we're struggling, right? We need that. Here's another question to think about in terms of your personal history, your personal story and God governing it. Why are you here today? Have you ever asked that question, why am I here in these pews today? There's a lot of ways of answering that question. And, you know, Paul would say, well, God governs your story. So God you know, kind of shaped your path so you would get here. That's true. And maybe some of you say, no, 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 no. I chose to be here. I like the music. I like the people. I, I, I like the preaching. I like this church. I chose to be in these pews. Well, who made you that way? Who gave you those musical tastes? Who gave you that interest in this book and, and an ability to read it and understand it? Who gave you the social awareness where you can appreciate people? It's God. It's God. God shapes not only the path that brought you here, but he shaped how you're wired so that you would be sitting in these pews in this worship service this morning. 
So God is the center of the human story. He's also the center of our personal narratives. What a challenging but also encouraging thought for all of us. So when someone gives you that platform and says, hey, tell me about Christ, make sure you remind them that this story that they're living out, it isn't, it isn't first about them. It's first about God. That's a good place to start. It's God's story. Now, the second thing we see in this first section, as, as Paul is documenting Jewish history, we see an emphasis that he puts on God providing leaders to Israel. Let me point it out to you. Look at verse 17. Talks about ancestors there. Fathers. God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. You think about that uh, in terms of the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. So Abraham and Isaac and Moses, those guys. He says in verse 20, judges and Samuel. So God provided judges. He provided the first prophet Samuel. Verse 21, he provided Saul, the first king. And then verse 22, David, the greatest king in Israelites' history, right? So God's providing these leaders. Some of them were priests, some of them were prophets, some of them were kings, and he was loving his people through these leaders. But I think the point of this whole section is actually verse 23. Look with me at 23. From this man, this is David, from David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. So after documenting all of these leaders and saying, hey, look how God provided these leaders for you, he lands on verse 23 and he says, this is all about Jesus. This is the final provision that God has made to lead his people. Everything was leading to Jesus. Everything was pointing at Christ. If we think about this even more, I mean, think about Jesus. He is the ultimate priest. He not only intercedes for his people, but he made, him, he made sacrifice for his people. He put himself on the altar. He's the ultimate prophet. He not only spoke God's word, but he, he embodied God in the flesh, right? And he is the son of David, the king, who will forever rule on God's throne. Now, what does this all have to do with us today, right? We're, we're not Jews, most of us, I guess I don't know all of you, but I'm making somewhat of an assumption there. Most of us here are not Jews. So what does this history have to do with us? So ethnically, no, we are not Jews. But spiritually speaking, there is a connection here. We are part of God's people. And that means the Jewish story, the ancient Jewish story, is our story as well. This is our history that we're reading about here. You are part of the church. This gives us reason and motivation to care about the Old Testament, right? It's not just a bunch of good moral stories. There's something else going on here. Um, you may have seen commercials uh, on TV for uh, Ancestor.com. You know, you log in and, and then you plug in your genealogy and other people are doing the same thing. And, and you get to know, um, hopefully, and the goal is, you get to know people uh, in your lineage. You know, people maybe you didn't know. It's different people are plugging in information. So it generates, this Ancestor.com website, it generates interest in our ancestors. And I think reading the Old Testament does the same thing. Or it should. It should help us generate interest in our spiritual ancestors, the ancient Jews. Now we can take this even a step further. The primary purpose of the Old Testament is to document this great story about Israel, yes, 
But in this story, God has hardwired all sorts of things that point to Christ. It's the cool part about the Old Testament. There's institutions such as priests and prophets and kings point to Christ. There's the, the sacrificial system points to Christ, of course. There's the tabernacle and the temple, the place where God dwelled amongst his people, points to Christ, where God would come down and dwell with his people in a human being, as a human being, excuse me. And so all of these sights and sounds of the Israelite culture and history, they all pointed forward towards Christ. So everything points to Christ in the Old Testament, finds fulfillment in Christ, culmination in Christ, clarification in Christ. This should give us tons of motivation to read the Old Testament. This is the lens through which we should read it. Now, here's the deal. Do we read the Old Testament with this gospel lens? Or do we read it like Jewish folks would read it? Have you ever thought about that? So when you're listening to a sermon, when you're you know, uh, reading uh, the book of Genesis, that's what I'm in right now, Genesis 43, that's hopefully what I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and read, the life of Joseph. I'm in Genesis 43, and I'm reading this passage. And before I come away from reading this passage, as I'm thinking through this passage, one of the questions I want to try to answer is, how does this Old Testament passage somehow find fulfillment or culmination in Christ? And if I don't do that, might as well be a Jew, right? So let me just encourage you to read your Old Testament with that gospel lens, with that Christological lens so that you can see, hopefully, more intricacies of Christ from the Old Testament, okay? So um, know your story. That's the first thing that, that Paul says here. Know God as the author and the main protagonist. Know your spiritual ancestors, the Jewish people, and how they pointed forward to Christ. The second point, know Jesus. Know Jesus. This is, of course, the heart of this sermon, verses 26 through 37. Now, isn't it interesting to compare Paul's message here with other sermons that have already been documented in uh, the, the, the book of Acts? Different guys, they start in different, very different places. So Peter at Pentecost, he starts with Joel chapter 2, a prophecy. Stephen before the, uh, the, the, the Jewish high council. He starts with Abraham. Philip with the Ethiopian, he starts in Isaiah. Paul in Athens in chapter 17, so we've got to fast forward a little bit, he starts not with a passage of Scripture. He actually is walking around and he sees an inscription written to an unknown God, and he connects that idol, essentially, uh, into the gospel message he's about to proclaim. So I think there's a lesson for us today as we think about this uh, application for evangelism, and that's start where people are at, but always, always, always end up with Jesus. You know, I think some of us uh, might think you, can, you can't vary your evangelism. You know, it, there, there's three particular points or six particular points or two particular points, and you just got to hammer both those points in that exact order. And others of us, maybe, maybe we think it's really important to vary our evangelism in order to build bridges. But maybe we fail to challenge people as a result. And so what, what I see here, the witness of these leaders, uh, their example, you can start really different places when you share the gospel, but always end up with Christ when you talk about him. Um, so what does Paul say about Jesus? Well, he says a few things about Jesus. When people ask me about Christ, I usually try to do a beeline to the cross, 
It's a good thing to do. It's not a bad thing. But how does Paul go about this? Well, notice first in verses 27 and 28, he talks about Jesus's blamelessness or his innocence. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. This is verse 27. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Of course, we, we say things like, you know, there's no perfect people. It's kind of nice to hear that, right? It lowers our expectations of each other and can deal with each other a little bit better. But here, see, of course, in the witness of Scripture, Jesus was the only perfect person. Have you ever thought about that? Have you, have you let that idea linger in your mind? A little bit. Jesus was perfectly loving. He was perfectly patient with those who are difficult to love. Jesus was perfectly precise with his words. Jesus was perfectly sincere in all of his motivations. He was the perfect servant. He was a perfect listener. He was the perfect comforter. He was the perfect inspirer. He was the perfect shepherd. And so before Pontius Pilate and all the people who were trying to kill him, he was entirely guiltless. He was the spotless lamb of God. He's the only human being who is worthy of the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. Um, I visited the... DC Mall a few times, and um, you know one of the I think it's near the DC Mall um, or on it. One of the the sites is the Holocaust Museum. Maybe some of you have been there before. I've never been there, but I've walked on the outside of the Holocaust Museum and I've seen people, you know, coming out and I've kind of taken notes. It's been really interesting to see these really sullen, you know, just sad folks coming out of there. You can see they were moved by what they saw in these museums. Some of them were detached. They had glazed looks on their faces. They were clearly feeling the horror of what had occurred. The horror, the shock. They were feeling shock, I'm sure. Maybe they were angry. I don't know. I was thinking about this. Shouldn't we feel even more for Christ and what happened to him? Shouldn't we feel even more? I'm not trying to downplay what happened at the Holocaust, please. But when you consider the Son of God who was entirely innocent, being misunderstood, being misrepresented, being maligned for the entirety of his life, then tortured, and then hung on a cross to die, who endured the wrath of God for sinners, shouldn't we feel something there? Horror, anger, injustice, shock. And so when we're given that platform and someone says, tell me about Christ, let's tell them about the cross, but maybe let's start with his innocence because I think starting with his innocence is only going to make the cross that much more powerful, right? There is no greater injustice that has occurred in human history aside from the cross. So Jesus is innocent. That's the first thing Paul says. The second thing Paul says, I think, in this section is Jesus is the realization and the climax of God's plans. You see, all, of, all the way through this section, actually, over and over again, as it was written, 
it was fulfilled, as it was stated, as it was promised. In other words, all of these Old Testament prophecies that were promised in the Old that are now fulfilled in Christ. Let me point out a few. We've already seen a few of these. Verse 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, as he promised. So a Savior was promised. Verse 27. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets. So his innocence was promised. Verse 29. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And so his humiliation and his death was promised. Verse 32. When we tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. His resurrection was promised. And so here's Paul's point, I think. Every part of Jesus, every part of his life, his death, his resurrection, every part of who Jesus is was carefully planned by a very, very, very loving God. Nothing was accidental. Nothing was out of order. God was behind this whole thing, the good, the bad, the ugly, the painful. God was behind it. Every part of it. A third thing that Paul says about Jesus is, he points out, of course, the resurrection from the dead. Paul repeats this four times in verse 30, 33, 34, 37. God raised this Jesus from the dead. This is the crux of the gospel message, right? You take away the resurrection and the whole Christian faith crumbles. So you've got to emphasize the resurrection. I wonder, do we re- uh, emphasize the resurrection when people ask us about Christ? That's a challenge for me. I, I, I don't do that enough. The resurrection is so important, right? Now, there's some tricky logic uh, here in the, in the middle of this whole section where Paul uses three Old Testament passages to show how the resurrection was promised. I'm not going to get into all of it. It can be confusing, but I want to quickly point out a little bit of Paul's logic starting in verse 34. So look with me there. He says, The fact that God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. This is from Isaiah 55. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Okay, so there's going to be some holy, sure blessings given to David. It's been promised to David. It's going to be given. What are these holy and sure blessings? I think 35 answers that. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. This is Psalm 16. It seems to me in the context when you read Psalm 16 that the holy one is actually David. You're not going to let David see decay. That doesn't make sense. This is what Paul's saying. doesn't make sense because David's dead, right? You can point at some tomb somewhere and his bones are rotting away somewhere. So who is this really talking about? Who will receive the sure and holy blessing of bodily incorruptibility? That's another David. Someone in the family of David, Jesus, the the true holy one who did not see corruption, who was raised from the dead to new life. So three parts of Jesus. Innocence, how he fulfills the Old Testament scriptures, and finally his resurrection. Now, let's bring this down to us. What kind of Jesus do you have? 
What kind of Jesus do you believe in? What kind of Jesus is functioning in your life today? Is it the Jesus we've read and discussed, or is it some other kind of Jesus? You believe in a therapist Jesus? Who's there to make you feel better? Do you subscribe to the life coach Jesus? Who will help you become a better you? Do you get on your knees and you pray to genie in a bottle Jesus? Who's going to grant all of your wishes because he loves you? Or maybe the wise teacher Jesus who has some really helpful wise things to say to you. Helpful anecdotes to help you in your life. What about political Jesus who gives credence to your either your conservative moral agenda on one hand or affirms your liberal justice agenda on the other hand, depending on what passages of Scripture you choose to highlight. Now, of course, you know, Jesus does care about how this country is run. He is a good counselor. He does answer our prayers. He's the best of teachers. But if you limit Jesus to these narrow human categories, you are missing out on the fullness of who he is. You're missing out on the majesty of who Jesus is. So who is this Jesus? Well, according to Paul, Jesus is the innocent lamb, the scapegoat, unjustly slain for sinners, silent before those who slaughtered him. Jesus is the realization of everything God has planned since the beginning of time. He is the ultimate prophet, ultimate priest, ultimate king. He is the new temple, God with us. He is Emmanuel forever for us. Jesus is the one whom God raised from the dead. And what's the point of that? Well, he raised him to new, new, uh, to new life so that we can have new life. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He's now sitting victoriously. He's now sitting gloriously at the right hand of God and all things God has placed under his feet. He rules with power now. This is Jesus. Is this your Jesus, my friends? Is this the Jesus that functions in your life as you wake up on a Monday morning and you're getting ready for school or you're getting ready for work, as you sit before your family for dinner? Is this the Jesus that functions in your life? Is this the Jesus that you proclaim to those who don't know him? Or do you pick just a few things that maybe they, that will tickle their ears just a little bit about Jesus? So Paul tells the Jews, know your story, know Jesus, and lastly, know your need. This is where we're going to end, know your need. Let's read verses 38 through 41. Therefore, my brothers, Paul says, I want you to know that through Jesus, this Jesus I've been talking about, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. There's a big statement. Take care that what happens, uh, what the prophets have said, does not happen to you. This is from Habakkuk chapter 1. Look. Look. You scoffers, wonder, perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. So he says here, Paul says at the end, you need to be forgiven. You need to be forgiven from your sins. You need to be justified, which is just another way of saying you need to be declared right before a holy God. 
They needed forgiveness. They needed justification because sin had separated them from God. And the old system of the Jewish faith, the, the law of Moses, that's not going to cut it anymore. Trying to obey, to appease a holy God is not going to work. You can't do enough. You can't work hard enough. You can't work long enough to appease a holy God. You can't pile up enough religious rituals or moral faithfulness. You can't present enough accomplishments before the feet of God to appease him. That's what Paul is saying to his Jewish audience here. It's not going to cut it. But with Jesus, all of this is over because he is the final prophet, priest, and king. All of this is over. He is the one for all sacrifice for sins. And so now those who believe can be declared righteous. Now, look at the two ways you can respond to this, right? This gospel, this message, this, this is what I should have been telling that Woman on the plane, those women on the plane. Two ways to respond. Verse 39, you can believe. Through him, everyone who believes. And you get the good stuff, right? You get justification, you get forgiveness. Or you can scoff. Verse 41, look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. Be astounded and perish. You know what a scoffer is, right? Someone who ridicules, mocks, jeers. A cynic, maybe you've, you've met a cynic of Christ before, a cynic of the gospel. Maybe some of you here are a cynic of the gospel. I've been a cynic of the gospel in the past. Are you a scoffer of Christ here as you're sitting here in these pews? Do you mock and ridicule and jeer at Christ? Well, let me warn you as Paul warns these Jews. If you are on that track, it's a devastating one. According to verse 41, you will perish. And that's not just talking about physical death. That's talking about eternal separation and death. I don't want you to walk down that path. So would you, would you get off the track of scoffing? Would you get on the track of faith? Would you believe? Would you trust Christ even today, even this morning? It's not too late to trust Christ for the forgiveness of sin so that you will be justified. So what will you say when you're given the opportunity to talk about Christ on that plane flight or around the water cooler? What will you say? Well, let's learn from Paul's example here. Let's remind those folks who the center of the human story is. Let's clarify who Christ is, and let's call them. Let's be faithful to call them to faith and repentance. Don't leave that part out. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the gospel, this good news for sinners, Lord, that through Christ, Lord, we, we can be right with you. What an amazing message this is. How, how hope-giving, Lord, this message is. And Father, I pray for those that are here who may not know you, who may be scoffers, who may be jeerers, mockers, this Christian faith. I pray that you'd soften their heart, even in these moments. I pray that they would See Christ for who he is. Pray that they would humble themselves, repent, and believe in Jesus this morning. I pray for the rest of us, Lord, that you would equip us to be your evangelists, to be your witnesses in this world on the South Shore. Help us even this week. Give us opportunities, Lord. Give us mercy to be faithful witnesses. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.